Hello and welcome to another episode of Forum GovTech Europe, the podcast that fosters the debate on the relationship between government and technology in Europe and beyond. I'm your host Simon and today I'm talking to Lyric Jane, the founder and CEO of Logically, a company that identifies misinformation and disinformation around the world using AI and expert analysts. Logically offers products and services to consumers, businesses and public sector partners. The company boasts a team of 90 individuals who fact-check news and curate content to make sure readers have all the facts. Lyric is a serial entrepreneur and engineer who founded Logically in 2017. After observing the breakdown in public discourse during the 2016 US presidential election and the Brexit referendum in the UK, he studied engineering at Cambridge University and MIT. We talked about Logically and how their human-machine collaboration approach is tackling misinformation in the digital realm. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Lyric. Hello and welcome to another episode of Forum GovTech Europe. Today, Lyric Jane is joining me, the founder and CEO of Logically AI a company that tries to tackle misinformation in the digital sphere. Hello, Lyric. Thank you very much for being here. First of all, tell us a bit about you. Who are you and how did you end up working in GovTech? Hi, Simon. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here uh, with you today. Um, so I'm, I'm the founder and CEO of Logically. Um, I, I never thought I'd be working in, in the space and certainly not uh, in, in, in the GovTech space, but uh, the work that we do in, in tackling misinformation and disinformation is, um, it, yeah, is, is super important to me. It, it was a series of events in 2015 and 2016 that drove me into that space. So in 2015, unfortunately, had a bit of health misinformation impact my my family and and we we lost my grandmother a bit too early because she believed a bit of health misinformation. Um, and following that in, in 2016, there was obviously the two big geopolitical events of 2016. There was the European referendum in the UK and there was the presidential elections in, in America. And I happened to be in both those countries at, at that point in time. And regardless of the results of those two democratic events, it was clear that the internet was impacting how people make decisions, kind of those micro decisions such as my grandmother choosing to take her medicine or not to the big macro decisions around how uh, who, who gets to run various countries and uh, particularly fraudsters and even adversarial nation state actors trying to influence how we how we make those decisions so it felt like something uh, super impactful uh, to be able to devote uh, my time and our team's time to and specifically around GovTech I think when we when we started looking at the stakeholder community around this problem and who could have uh, the most impact uh, we we knew that there was a great role for individuals to play for newsrooms, for NGOs and civic society initiatives, uh, as well as technology companies. But the ability uh, of of kind of governments to be able to use our technologies and our services would would be kind of a way of significantly magnifying our and amplifying our impact, from kind of reaching one person through our app to be potentially reaching millions or even billions of people via uh, indirect methods when, when working with governments and, and with platforms. Okay, fascinating. Um, yeah, before we dive into the topic itself and Logically AI, I might just want to ask you what your definition of GovTech is, because it's a very new term to some extent. A lot of people are yeah, defining it for themselves in different ways, and I'm very interested in what your definition of the term would be. 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it is definitely an, an evolving term. The way we kind of look at it is maybe maybe some some of the genesis behind GovTech, I guess, is that historically most governments have had a chronic problem of not being the greatest technology adopters. They tend to be very bureaucratic in their ways and very um, long-termist in, in commitments that they make to certain legacy processes and legacy ways of doing things. And really GovTech is a way in which um, either internal processes within government and how government functions or how government interacts with citizens uh, could be uh, can be improved via technology. And what, what do I mean by improvement? It could e- either be kind of on the government side, uh, efficiency uh, in, in, from a cost point of view, can uh, technology help uh, do things in a more affordable way? Or can technology help address a problem that government isn't focusing on or doesn't have the resources to focus on? Or on the on the citizen engagement side, it could be something like um, um, improving user experiences, improving civic participation and engagement. So I think across uh, the broad bucket of things there, we'd, we'd classify anywhere where technology might be able to be introduced into into government to to help impact um, um, those 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 key objectives as, as something uh, falling into into the gov tech bucket. Right, great. So now heading the focus a bit towards logically AI. So what is it exactly that you do? How would you describe it? Yeah, we we work in a very topical space. We um, identify and combat misinformation and disinformation at scale uh, around the world. So given um, a piece of harmful content or activity or account that might be spreading a malicious uh, rumor for, for whatever purpose, either for profit or just for trolling or for some bigger geopolitical aim, we try and identify that activity in real time, flag it uh, for our, our partners, uh, I, mainly through automated methods. It then gets reviewed by expert analysts, either in our teams or in our clients' teams, And then we take some kind of action on that particular threat. So action might be digital enforcement, reporting this to a big social media platform so that they can take enforcement action on that content or on that account, or reporting it to even maybe a law enforcement or security agency if it's a, if it's illegal and not just harmful, uh, such that that individual or institution can be investigated and held to account. Or uh, finally, kind of communications in, in terms of publishing, fact checks, etc., that help um, counter Uh, any of these claims uh, that are that are being um, uh, that are gaining significant traction on, online and on social media. Right, <clears throat> and a lot of people are talking that we live in a post-truth society itself. As someone, I mean, I guess who has been reading a lot and studying the topic for a longer time, and now trying to actively do something against it. Do you think that there's a, an objective truth that there's such a thing, or do you think that? truth is more of a subjective um, yeah, phenomenon that is experienced, like depending on the beliefs of individuals or groups. Yeah, I think belief systems, values, etc. They, they'd all be, they, they're all certainly important and need to be respected. I think it varies around the topic that we're, we're, we're talking about. Like when it comes to science, yes, there is, there is the truth. Uh, and that is why, why the scientific method has been developed to over a period of time have various hypotheses that go through a rigorous process to become a, a theory and then a law, and then it becomes the truth. Uh, so in, in some domains, yes, an objective truth does occur, does exist. Uh, but in, in certain domains, I think we need to look at it, look at things as being credible and non-credible, uh, where things, especially kind of um, opinions, uh, can be based on valid information and on evidenced information, 
or just based on kind of uh, conjecture uh, and and uh, deep belief systems that again we, we we probably have to deal with in a different way. But even even in that context, I think there are some things that we can hold to be the objective truth. Certain things that have happened uh, in, historically, and certain things that are happening. Uh, so it, it really does vary across the domain. And I think um, what is a fact and what isn't a fact is is, is really uh, a very very complex topic to dive into. Uh, for example, if if I put the claim to you that uh, Barack Obama is the president of the United States, well, that was true a few years ago. It no longer is true. But if I put to you the statement Barack Obama was the forty fourth president of the United States, that is that is true, and it is a statement that will always remain true. It, it is eternally true. So I think that the, there are a lot of these complications in, in in semantics that we we have to deal with. Yeah, definitely. And maybe now, just to help myself and, and the audience's clarification, could you give some concrete examples on how the app works or where it has been adopted and used? Yeah, absolutely. So we work with uh, a number of different types of stakeholders. So uh, our, our consumer app and our consumer browser extension uh, effectively uh, provide uh, additional insights on any media that um, users might be coming across. So in particular, this is something that's been adopted quite a lot in uh, India uh, to a limited extent in the UK and in one particular battleground state in, in America. Uh, and that's where we uh, provide kind of credible news through our newsfeed, contextualized um, to, to, to share multiple viewpoints on the same story and a chronology of events that led to that particular point in that story. But really the main thing within the app and the browser extension that gets used is the automated and the semi-automated fact-checking uh, system that we've deployed. So a user can share either a URL or a free sentence of text, uh, and we put that through our automated fact-checking pipeline to try and identify what the most salient claims. If it is a URL, it might have 20 potential facts in it in a, in a, in a, in a news article. They then choose which fact they'd like to fact-check uh, or which claim they'd like to fact-check. We then run a load of processes to match that claim against potentially single sources of truth databases, government databases, WHO, World Bank, etc., as well as our own internal fact-checking databases to see if this is something we fact-checked previously or if there is a single source of truth that exists. Uh, otherwise, we then go through our automated research process. We turn that one sentence into a, a hundred possible different qu search queries uh, that automatically sources then data through our search partners And we're able to identify potentially 5,000 plus candidate paragraphs uh, from various articles, reference material that both support, contradict, or even just discuss that underlying claim. And we put that in competition with each other to then come up with an assessment of whether something is, is, is true, false, misleading, or at present unverifiable, along with a confidence score. And in cases where we're not confident in what we're saying, we then pass it along to our expert fact-checking team. And they have their own workflow around how they how they deal with certain types of claims with a load of automated cues and forensic tools for image analysis, for example, and and, and report back to, 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 to a user. The kind of our, our tools and our products that get used most widely or kind of at a, from a top-down way, especially in, 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 gov, in a government scenario, would be our intelligence uh, product. So that's logically intelligence, which helps identify all of these information and coordination threats, uh, help, triages them by uh, suggesting which ones need to be dealt with first based on virality, reach, and risk, 
and then suggesting various countermeasures to them, um, such as uh, the enforcement digitally in the real world or, or, or via fact-checking. And that's something that's being used right now in, in multiple countries, uh, both uh, around uh, election events, around COVID and the vaccine distribution. There's so much hesitancy today that that's being created because of misinformation. So where one of the things that uh, a lot of organizations are, are, are using to try and identify pockets of this hesitancy, especially when it's being driven by uh, misinformation and conspiratorial thinking. <clears throat> All right, fascinating. And now playing devil's advocate here for a little bit, I can imagine that a lot of people within radicalized sectors of Western society or society in general prefer believing in misinformation than actual facts. What do you make out of this? And how can we create a societal discourse which creates more synergies instead of dividing people? Yeah, that's the real challenge here, right? It's There's something um, that's just psychologically ingrained in us that is unfortunate in that we are automatically very attracted to things that might be negative things that are believed within our own in-groups and if it so happens that your in-group is one of these very radicalized groups you will believe that to be the truth you will kind of even further spiral down into into that rabbit hole i think there's there's two challenges there that we need to try and address which is first of all there's coordinated campaigns to try and recruit more people into these groups so last year, when a lot of these COVID conspiracies were were taking root, almost all of them were swirling the QAnon drain. They, they QAnon seemed to be at the center of almost all of them, and it, it it's surprising how many people they were allowed to recruit online. Kind of we one of the um, uh, aggregator websites that we identified had more than ten million visitors on a on a monthly basis, and it it's it's surprising and shocking that governments and platforms allowed such a big conspiratorial movement to grow so rapidly. So I think the first thing we need to do is kind of limit outright recruitment into these radicalized groups uh, as, as, as quickly as we can and as aggressively as we can. And then the second challenge is, are there de-radicalization approaches that we can use on people that are already de uh, already radicalized? Uh, from what we've seen, it, it is possible if people are still very new into these groups, but if, if they become entrenched, it is incredibly difficult. There's, there's so many methods that have been tried out by, by a, a variety of organizations, and really it becomes very difficult to de-radicalize someone once they have been radicalized. The best cases we've seen has been kind of an ex-radical uh, communicating with a current radical, uh, putting them in contact, especially in a physical environment as opposed to a digital environment. Those types of things tend to be most successful, but in a in a in a in a COVID era where with lockdowns etc not 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 really not really possible, uh, but I think that there is a possibility that if if we can try and kind of safeguard against a lot of these extreme agenda driven groups that exist online and I very early on identify attempts to recruit and grow like if if these groups are limited like fine and even if these groups are are, are large say like the flat earthers but they're not going about doing any real world harm i think that that still i think is is, a, is an interesting policy question of whether we, we act on them or not uh, but i think it's when there is harm that's being caused because of these groups like qanon uh, and, and the COVID conspiracies being directly linked to the burning of 5g towers in uh, in the uk what happened at capitol hill we uh, identified signals 36 hours before um capitol hill that something was 
something was about to happen. And it wasn't just that some people were about, about to protest, but that a, a, a small group of Q-affiliated people were planning on breaking in. Um, so these are the kinds of things that I think move away from the world of just offline of, of, of online discourse and campaigning to real world harm uh, that, that can be kind of security threats, threats to public safety, to election integrity, to public health. I think those are the ones that we probably need to take most seriously and, and crack down on more, more seriously. Right. And uh, what would you tell someone who's skeptical of your product? I can imagine that most people, you know, want to check twice before adopting an application that checks what truth is and what misinformation is. Um, what would you tell a government official in Europe? Why should they adopt this technology? Um, I think being skeptical is great. Uh, I am very skeptical of our own technology. Everyone is and everyone needs to be. And I think that's the only way in which we can we don't we're sure that we don't blindly adopt technology but that we adopt it with the appropriate safeguards and controls and procedures so would completely invite as much skepticism as possible i think the way that we've built the technology we happen to be the biggest users of our own products so we're not just a technology company we, we have a, a large team of analysts uh both open source uh, intelligence analysts as well as Uh, fact-checking uh, analysts and these these people use our technologies they they harden our models they mo they harden our ai and if if our technologies weren't working and weren't useful we would be the first people to know because we're the, we're the majority users of, of, our, of our platform so we we are aware of its limitations uh more than most people would be about their own technologies so whenever we we, we see that there are limitations we're extremely candid about it and i think we need to be um careful about the level of automation that's used in the space because yes there's uh, the, the state of ai today is, is is maturing quite fast and a lot of exciting things are possible especially in this space uh, but the adoption of this technology needs to be measured and that's why we feel by by having this parallel approach where when we work with any partner be it a government or a platform we use a mix of both our expert human teams as well as as well as our automation so that we, we get the best of both worlds. We get the nuance uh, and, and cultural and domain and local expertise that uh, people can offer, but we bring the scale and efficiency and speed that AI can offer. Uh, so that, that's really the spirit in which we, we, we start working with, with various governments, et cetera. And on the, on the question of kind of us potentially getting, getting things wrong, we want to be completely open to being, being scrutinized. So even uh, in the non-governmental sense, any fact check that we publish, Just under that fact check is a, is a reporting form. So people can question when we've gotten things wrong or if new information has come to light, they, they can share it with us. And within a certain kind of acceptable, I think two to three days is the, is the criteria, we will come back and, and update our fact checks and update our, our assessments if it is uh, warranted. So we're, we're completely open to the fact that we're not beyond, we're, we're, that we every now and then things might go um, uh, Uh, past our filters etc that we yeah we, we we have sufficient safeguards uh built around the use of automation and the use of our product um to to, to, to make sure that it's it's going to be palatable for for most organizations right great i hope you keep this uh trade of skepticism i think it's very important especially in the tech world we see that uh yeah ceos from big tech companies that are skeptical performing better in my opinion and yeah building more like human-centered products than others without naming anyone 
Um, now maybe shifting a bit to like the bigger picture, misinformation, news consumption. What is your vision for the internet and news consumption in the future? Do you believe that the internet will maintain an open place? It's it's like in the beginning, the ideal vision of the internet. Or do you think that we're like it's inevitable to move towards this phenomenon of splinternet that each country, each society will have its own sphere of influence within the digital sphere as well? Um, the, the hope in me is that it remains to be one open internet as it's been for so long. Um, but I, I think it there are good reasons why we're, 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 we might be heading towards that fragmentation of the internet, such as kind of just different cultural values in various different parts of the world. It wouldn't be fair to prescribe uh, a lot of Western notions and, and, and values in in certain uh, countries that are more Eastern-minded, etc. So I, I can completely see where a lot of these initiatives are are coming from. However, I, I, I would I think it would be more advisable for any of these efforts uh, that that are being made to regulate um, online content and the internet in general to be more collaborative with with, with multiple similar-minded countries, particularly countries that are democratic in nature and not authoritative, uh, to to come up with a similar framework in which they might be able to. Um, uh, to, to, to regulate the internet because clearly a degree of regulation is is required because of the severe number of, of, of harms that we see online from misinformation, disinformation to child safety to extremism. So I, I, I think regulation is important, but trying to have as many countries on a, on a, on a, on a common uh, standard with common definitions and, uh, and, 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 and classifications of what is harmful, what isn't harmful, what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable would uh, probably be the, the, the best way forward. I think that, that it, is, it does seem like we're heading towards that. In the UK, we have the Online Harms and Safety Bill. In India, there was some new regulations that were introduced by um, the in, uh, Information Broadcasting and the IT Ministry. And in, in the EU, we have the Digital Services Act. So it, it does look like we're, we're heading towards that direction in a lot of countries, but it is being done at country level or block level. Um, one thing to say to that is that this might be the kind of uh, a GDPR-like moment where if uh, the EU does take the lead, which it does look like it is starting to do, uh, it just might just become the common standard that a lot of other countries indirectly adopt because platforms are likely to adopt whoever adopt whatever the first popular framework is. And if that one is um, re like reasonably scalable and can scale uh, uh, across across countries, it might mean that other standards uh, in other countries are deemed redundant. So there is there is hope, um, but I, I, increasingly there, there is a, a great risk that we are leading towards splinter and, and certainly already in, in authoritarian countries that that already exists i think we we need to try and preserve um kind of a, a, a notion of a, a, a safe and regulated internet that's still somewhat open uh, and and common to um kind of um democratic and open free countries Great. Yeah, I share your view on that totally. Let's hope that uh, yeah, future developments will head into this direction. And now let's say that the Trump era, Trump administration is characterized by fake news and misinformation, Russian bots, name it. Um, what is your expectation from the Biden-Harris administration in terms of tech policy? Do you believe that we will see big changes in terms of how big tech is regulated in the, in the US, in, in Europe in general? 
or um, what what is your take on that? Uh, we're hopeful. Um, I think we America has always been very regulation shy uh, when it comes to anything, and certainly in, in the space of technology, because it kind of almost singularly impacts companies that are incorporated in America the most. Um, so I think um, it's it's they're, they're certainly a, a very behind the curve when it comes to regulation in the space of misinfo and disinfo uh, compared to uh, Europe and the UK, for example. Um, so there is a lot of catch up that that needs to happen. There are a few nuances to American legislation because the companies incorporated there, Article two thirty, etc., play play a very unique role. There are a lot of discussions around what's to happen there. Uh, uh, kind of one extreme could be uh, repealing and replacing it with something entirely new, which again could be challenging and risky, or coming up with uh, amendments which again risks not going far enough. So it's interesting to see which direction uh, the administration will head in. Some of the appointments do signal some of that, but we'll we'll have to wait to see what what comes out. But I think what what has been promising is that at least in in January. Um, yeah, the administration came out quite strongly to say that something is going to happen and there is an inevitable sense that something is about to happen, that that is growing in, in Washington, D.C., but it, it probably will take another 12 to 18 months, maybe even two years before before something something comes out of it. I think our hope, I think given um, the, the unique role that the First Amendment plays in, plays in America, it's unlikely Uh, to be significant regulation around misinformation, but I think disinformation is safe regulatory ground for, for, for any country to be playing in. It, it, it doesn't need an independent arbiter of truth. It, 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 it avoids that whole um, uh, issue. And by just focusing on the methods that are being used by nation state actors and other uh, agenda-driven actors to, to inauthentically spread narratives, if, 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 if that's low-hanging fruit, I think it'd be, it'd be good to start on that. Um, in case Washington heads into various gridlocks because of, yeah, the, the interesting dynamics of American politics. Yeah, definitely. And maybe now my last question, what is your personal vision for logically and misinformation in general? Are you optimistic about the future and how are you trying to yeah, work towards a better future in the digital sphere? Um, I'll, I'll start off with a pessimistic note, uh, and that's that. When we started, there was about 12, 15 countries that conducted influence operations outside their own border. That number is now over 80. So the, the threat landscape has significantly grown. Um, in addition to that, I think something like five, six billion is spent by actors on that side of the table to produce and conduct these campaigns. And I can certainly say that that's, that's not how much money is given to logically. So um, I, th I think there is this resource asymmetry that exists just because the other side feels that and knows that their campaigns can be effective. They can lead to real world impact in, in moving certain, uh, in, in helping them achieve their geopolitical aims or helping improve their geopolitical status. They're investing quite heavily in that space. On, on this side of the table, the investment is mainly being led by one or two big platforms, your, your Facebook and Googles of the world. Other platforms simply don't have the economics to be able to invest in large-scale um, intelligence and um, moderation efforts. And investments by governments have really been limited to early stage. I think uh, th there were a lot of European investments um, kind of mid to the tune of a million, two million, three million, maybe uh, in, a, in, in a handful of projects. But when you compare that to the five billion number, 
uh, they, they seem very trivial. So we need to find, understand through collaboration, through various um, um, in kind of uh, supranational bodies that exist, NATO, EU, etc. How, how can we pool resources to come up with a common response where, and allocate those resources across not just technology, but technology, NGOs, civil society, just research, uh, where, where a lot of research is needed around, hey, is, is, is a takedown actually effective? Or does it drive a conversation underground and make it even more potent? So I think these are open research areas where that, that need a lot of funding. And our, our hope is that that will, that will come. I think the silver lining here is that there are uh, organizations that are kind of punching above their weight and we would certainly include us in 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 that in that category. Um, kind of last year, over the last year, just the sheer volume of misinformation and disinformation that we've been able to take action on has been uh, really eye opening for me. Uh, one of the really strange cases was um, uh, again around QAnon, where we we identified the individual who was behind one particular aggregator, and that aggregator was visited by ten million plus people. But once we kind of tried to hold that individual accountable, we said who this individual was, who was trying to uh, hide behind his anonymity. He took down the aggregator site. So it's it's um, there, there are really simple things that we can be doing uh, across a range of things, kind of the, the simple platform reporting, sometimes law enforcement, security agency reporting, and sometimes just through just holding individuals accountable ourselves uh, to, to try and dial back the tide on misinformation and disinformation. Uh, we have a lot of challenges ahead. Um, there's there's so many languages in the world. There's so many platforms in the world, and there's new and emerging platforms like Parler and Gab that are starting to play an interesting role. There's there's private messaging platforms, your 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 Telegrams and WhatsApps, where misinformation and disinformation play a, have have a, have a very different dynamic. Um, so expanding into all of those areas and ensuring that we are effective, not just in detection, which we currently are, but also in re- responding to in, in those more, more more challenging form factors is, is is a direction that we're we're heading in. And we're we're encouraged by some of the regulations that are that are coming up, but I think they, they probably need to come a bit sooner and be a bit more focused around misinformation and disinformation because it seems like it's a topic everyone's been avoiding. Kind of in a lot of the safety bills, child safety seems to be a, a big, big, big um uh, focus for, for for obvious reasons, and because there there isn't a lot of politics involved. But as soon as misinfo and disinfo become within scope for 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 for, for, for any kind of regulation, uh, people seem to in government and policymakers seem to be um, seem to be very very cautious uh, with it. Which which is important. It is important to be cautious. We know what bad regulation looks like in this space. But I think it's it's, it's also important to be ambitious because. Um, yeah, it, it's it's such a severe problem, um, and uh, yeah, we we're 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 happy and we're willing to work with any anyone who wants to help create that create that new future. And we're hopeful it it, it means uh, fewer QAnon memes and fewer uh, Pepe the Frog memes going going about the internet. Yeah, um, fantastic, Lyric. I think it's wonderful that we have people like you, brilliant minds, working on this and and trying to make a change and yeah turn the the world or at we at least like our societies towards like a better place because these problems are real and people should not underestimate them sadly we're running out of time thank you very much for being here today maybe before we cut off this conversation do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you and logically ai in the internet sure absolutely so we're 
our, our website's logically.ai, so you can find a lot about us both on the consumer side and more on the institutional side as well. You can also follow us on our social media handles, Logically AI, on, on Twitter and Instagram, and feel free to reach out to uh, me and our team via, via LinkedIn, etc. as well. Perfect. Thank you very much, Lyric. Thanks, Simon. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, make sure to rate our podcasts on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to come on the show, you can contact me via Twitter at ForumGolfTech or on our website ForumGolf.Tech. Until next time, Simon. <laughs>